Church. And please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, open up the New Testament, and then you'll get to Acts and Romans. If you get to First and Second Corinthians, go back to the left. Dads, happy Father's Day. Grateful for you all. Grateful to get to be a dad in community with you. Um, yeah, it's a, real, it's a real joy to get to be a dad in general, but in particular with uh, the men who call themselves dads and our fathers in our community. I'm really grateful for you all. I, I also just want to say thank you. Um, many of you did not miss me, but I was gone for six weeks uh, on a sabbatical, and I just want to say thank you. Our staff, our elders, our deacons, uh, who I get to serve with, I know served you well. Uh, five different folks from outside of our community came and served in opening up God's Word uh, for each of you, and it was deeply restful. I feel incredibly loved by a community that would love me so much to say, leave us alone for a little while and just go chill. Um, so from, from my family, from myself, my own well-being, and I felt like this was a season um, for my soul to catch up to my body a little bit from the season that we've been through as a church family. Um, and it means a lot to be a pastor who is also allowed to be a human being. And um, that doesn't happen because I demand it. It happens because you have given that gift. And so thank you. Thank you for that gift. I don't count it as a small token at all, but a tremendous uh, investment in me and my family. And I feel loved. Um, and so thank you so much for that. Uh, I also want to acknowledge that today is, a, is an important day for us uh, as a country. Juneteenth uh, commemorates a time when the good news of the liberation of enslaved people finally reached Galveston, Texas, sort of the last enclave uh, holding on to a deplorable act of slavery. And it reminded me this morning of uh, 20th century activist um, and uh, individual who was really one of the advocates for the original movement of civil rights in this country, Fannie Lou Hammer, who said that nobody's free unless everybody is free. Nobody is free until everybody is free. And, and I think that's something that should cause us deep lament that the message of freedom ever needed to be proclaimed in this country. And yet it animates us with great gratitude that it has been proclaimed. And now we, as a people of good news, get to continue to live that out. Because as much as that may be the law of the land, we know full well that this is often not what is practiced in our country, in the mind, in the heart, and in legislation. And so we desire to be a people who love freedom so much that we'll keep fighting for it in all of the ways that we don't see it in God's good world. Um, and so we, we celebrate this day, we lament this day, and yet we are grateful um, to continue to be called a people of freedom that God's called us to participate in. Uh, we're studying the book of Romans um, and Romans is a letter written by a man named Paul to a diverse community of Christians in first century Rome. It's an eclectic bunch of people, some of whom grew up in different ways than others. It's different ethnically, it's different socioeconomically, it's different spiritually. And he often takes moments, Paul does, within his letter, as we've explored this for the past uh, couple of years, he's taken time to address a particular group within that diverse collection of people. And he lets the rest of the church overhear what he is saying to them. And so within our own diversity and our own different expressions of backgrounds and understandings of faith and of culture and community, we also get to overhear a little bit as Paul directly addressed different people within the community. And we find ourselves now in a stretch of Paul's letter, right in the middle of one of these sections, chapters 9 through 11, 
where Paul is focused on addressing his religious Hebrew readers. So these would have been people who grew up worshiping the God of the Bible. They would have been telling his stories regularly. They would have grown up at the dinner table hearing stories about the Red Sea, about the Ten Commandments, about God's faithfulness throughout generations, and they would have learned to obey his rules throughout all of that storytelling and worship. And as we've considered the past couple of weeks, their knowledge or their understanding of God and even their passion for God and his law had created distance between God and his people. Because sin always does that, doesn't it? Sin always creates distance. But the good news, the gospel is this wonderful reality, an announcement that God has come close. That those sins separates, God comes close. God has bridged the gap that divide and has spiritually brought a chasm that we have just sung about between God and his people through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It wasn't simply because he said the gap is no longer there. It's because in a costly manner, he bridged that divide through the precious gift of his own blood. See, we were far off, Ephesians 2 tells us, but through Jesus, we have been brought near. However, even as followers of Jesus, we're still plagued by feelings and experiences, thoughts of God's distance. We feel like God is far away. Especially when life is hard, we can identify with the psalmist who wrote in Psalm 10 verse 1, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in time of trouble? Church, much of the Christian life is about understanding the proximity of God, where he is, who he is, where he is in relationship to us and his people. It's it's about remembering how close he is, even when he feels distant. It's about his intimacy. And in some religious and irreligious ways, we are tempted, I think, to close the gap on our own, the gap which Christ has already bridged and closed by his grace. So Paul's point today, I think, is quite simple, and it's very clear. Christ is close. Christ is close. That's what I'd like to talk about today. I'd like to talk about the intimacy of Christ in three parts. First, we'll look at the nature of intimacy. Then we'll look at the opposition of intimacy. And thirdly, we'll look at the cultivation of intimacy from Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. So let me read that text, pray, and then we'll get to work. Romans 10, verse 9 through 10. Because if we, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is the very word of God, and we say thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <coughs> it's really good news for our souls that you are a God who speaks. I'm so familiar with that idea that I often misunderstand it, that you're a God who speaks. Because you didn't have to. You didn't have to reveal your will. You didn't have to reveal your character, your love, your faithfulness to us through your spoken and revealed word. And yet here it is. Here it is. Your scriptures are not just a collection of the wisest things that human beings have said. These are words that have been put on a page by your power, by your grace, 
by your vulnerability, your cosmic vulnerability to say, here's who I am. I want you to know me. And so would we be thrilled by that today? In our sorrow, in our joy, in our curiosity, in our frustration, in our anger, in all of the different ways that we come to this text, would you speak to us? So that we would become the people that you're calling us to be. I pray that for myself. Father, as this word is proclaimed over us, may we hear it, may we receive it, may we obey it, may we celebrate it, may we worship you as a result of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So early on in chapter 10, Paul begins by asking a couple of questions, and it's a rhetorical setup, if you will. He asks, who will go up to heaven to find Christ, and who will go to the depths to find Christ? The reason these questions are rhetorical is probably just like you knew that your parents' questions back in the day were rhetorical, is because instead of wondering what you think, they're trying to prove a point, right? By asking the questions, Paul is making a statement. He's not waiting for you to respond because he's really curious. Paul is trying to prove a point. And actually, these questions are not original to Paul. He's quoting Deuteronomy 30. When they were originally posed by Moses, Moses was talking about the law. He was talking about the rules for holy living that God gave his people in ancient Israel. And Moses was saying that the law is close. You don't have to go up to the heavens to get them. You don't have to go to the depths to get them. He said in Deuteronomy 30, 14, but the word is very near. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. He says the law is near. It's accessible. It's comprehensible. It's doable. So obey. This is what Moses is saying. The law is close. And it's, it's this closeness and its digestible nature, if you will, of the law, which Paul latches onto from Moses' teaching and then applies it to Christ in Romans. It's a masterful piece of writing. We ought to appreciate it. He's making a connection across thousands of years. And I think he's addressing our fear. Paul calls out a deep objection. He exposes what many religious and not-so-religious people find so hard about trusting God. You see, we don't think God is close at all, do we? After all, we can't see him. We struggle to understand his teaching. There are plenty of passages in the Bible, are there not, where we go, I'm probably never going to understand that, so I'm going to move to the next chapter. And maybe every time we come around to that passage, we just skip over it because it's like, I tried six times. This is not going to be magic number seven, right? We don't understand his teaching. He, he regularly seems unresponsive to the violence that we see in our neighborhoods or the grief that befalls us when we lose a loved one and the loneliness that we feel in our own hearts. And the immediate and constant needs of our children, it feels like God is far away. See, our circumstances often tell us that God is distant, don't they? Church, there is perhaps no greater lie that we have to face or that we have to contend with more regularly than the lie that God is far away, detached, unbothered, that he's distant. Our spiritual ancestors, in fact, have been battling this lie, I think, for generations. It's what led the psalmist in Psalm 13 to say, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Almost every time I read those words, and I'm a fairly jovial dude, I'm like, that's my heart. 
I feel those words. I wonder if you've ever felt them. I know, I know that I do regularly. When there's this impulse for consumerism in my heart that doesn't seem to die, like that lie I believe that I got to go shopping when I'm bored to fill some void, God feels really distant in that moment. It feels very carnal existence. When Laura and I lost our first pregnancy, God felt so far away. It was one of the darkest moments in my life. I had no idea what to do. When people have left our church, it's been really hard. It's been really hard when I've seen my small group get smaller. Right? Or when men and women who served us as elders and deacons and brothers and sisters in battle, like through COVID, right? When they've moved away, like at no fault of their own or ours, it's just hard. I'm like, God, God seems far. When frustrations like melancholy and depression show up in my heart, God feels so far in those moments. And I begin to fear. I fear that God is distant and that he'll stay far away. How about you? I wonder if you can relate to that. See, that's what Paul, I think, is connecting with. Paul is connecting to divine intimacy in the face of this fear. Paul makes the connection by asking Moses questions with a different focus. Instead of the law, he centers us on Christ. Who will go to heaven to find Christ, he asks. Who will go down to the depths to find Christ? The answer to both questions is the same. No one. Well, specifically, he says this. Look at Romans 10, verse 6 through 7. So move your eyes up just a little bit if you're still on verses 9 and 10. He says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. So why? Why is the answer no? Or like, this is a bad idea. Because you can't go and bring Christ down from heaven. And nor can you bring Christ up from the depths. Why? Why can you not do that? Because Christ has already come down from heaven. Because he's already come down from the Father. Are you picking up on this, church? He's already come up from the depths. He's already risen from the dead. Do you see? One of the reasons that God is distant is because you and I have this strange proclivity to look for him in places where he is not. We have this strange proclivity to try to go up to heaven and get him and to try to go down to the depths to get him. And I'd like to explore that a little bit today. We're looking for him in the wrong places. Now, you might say, well, God is everywhere, preacher, so no matter where I go, I'm going to find him. I'm talking about in our souls the ways that we believe that God is hiding from us, he is not hiding. The ways that we believe that God is distant, he is actually close. Because you see, contrary to our misguided imaginations, Paul is saying what? Christ is close. You see, there is something about our salvation, the story of the life, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, which tells us the singularly comforting truth. God is close. That's what we need to talk about. Now, Moses' instruction in Deuteronomy was to obey. The law is close, so obey it. Because the law is close to you, you need to obey. Paul's instruction in Romans is to confess and believe. Because Christ is close, he says, say it and trust it. Look again at verse 9 and 10. Because if, we confess, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be, what, saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Christ is close. And because Christ is close, say it, church, and trust it, church. Why? Because in speaking this truth and trusting this truth, we both answer the opposition of intimacy in our souls, and we cultivate intimacy with God who is close to us. We face this opposition, and we cultivate intimacy. See, Paul is actually proving something to us in verse 9. It's why he uses this word because. Did you notice it? It seems a little bit off if you begin there. And the reason that we're beginning there as we move through this is it's going to cause us to look backwards. He's giving his readers a reason or proof behind the nearness of Christ. Paul has just said in verse 8 that the word of faith, which is shorthand for the gospel or Christ himself, the word of faith is near because, now in verse 9, All you have to do is confess and believe in order to enjoy salvation and, more specifically, the righteousness of God. In other words, hear this. Jesus is so close that all you need to do to access his presence is speak and trust. That's how close he is. That's what Paul is telling us. Are you with me yet? That's how close Jesus is to you, my sister and my brother. All you must do is speak and believe. See, but one of the great problems is that we spend most of our spiritual lives, most of our spiritual formation, believing that we have to chase after something that we already have. This is why it's so frustrating. We spend most of our spiritual formation, most of our Christian life, trying to hunt down something Jesus has already purchased and put in you by his Spirit. Think about it. One of the reasons that you keep changing jobs is because you're chasing security. And in Christ, you already have security. One of the reasons that you keep sleeping around or that we even as a culture, as a Christian culture, have made marriage an idol is because we're chasing love and intimacy. And and Christ is telling us what? I've already loved you. You already have love. One of the reasons that we move to the suburbs, God bless them, is because we're chasing comfort. Well, in Christ, what does it say? You already have peace. You already have it. Do you see, church, most of the things we chase after our entire lives, the scriptures say, you already got it. You already got it. Are you tracking with me? Everything you need, you already have. Everything you need, you already have. It's so close, in fact, you've just got to speak it and trust it. Now, I'm almost 40, so let me just speak with like that kind of grandiosity of being really old, right? Maturing and maturity in Christ is about recognizing what you already have. The the older I get, the more I realize what the 20-year-old was hunting for and what the 30-year-old was chasing after and purchasing, putting his time, talent, treasure, and energy into. The scriptures are like, Jason, slow down, rest. You've already got what you're running after. Have you ever noticed how really wise older people are so at rest? Do you know why? Because they're done chasing after what they already have. And this is with money, without, with what we would call earthly success or without. If you've got Jesus, the old preacher used to say, you got everything. You got everything. In order to stop chasing, though, 
There's things we need to identify within this truth that Paul is communicating today, and we need to then say those things, and we need to trust those things. We confess and we believe that you are secure, that you are loved, that you have peace. Because one of the things that we're chasing, I I believe many of us in this city, in this neighborhood, in this church family, we are incessantly chasing after intimacy. And we do this with God. We try to make Christ close, even though the scriptures tell us that he already is. We do this in a couple of ways, and I'd like to explore those to help us arrest that kind of hustle that we have in our hearts to chase down what we already have. Some more morally-minded people, we fear that God is distant, and so we chase after him through pride. It's, It's one of the lies that we believe, and the way that we try to close the gap is by doing good things and not doing bad things. We do good, in other words, to get close to God. We even sometimes use this language as if I feel close to God right now. And almost always what the morally-minded person means is I'm not messing up, is that I'm doing good things, and I'm obeying his word, and I'm sticking close to the playbook. We see this play out in the words and heart of the older brother, this kind of mentality or mindset in Jesus' story of the lost son in Luke 15. After the younger son comes home from squandering the family's um, inheritance and money, the older brother complains to his father. Here's what he says. Here, see if you can identify with it. Look, not a great way to start speaking to your dad, by the way. Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fatted calf. Did you hear it? The older brother explained that he had closed the gap between his father and himself by what? Serving him and never disobeying his father. By doing good and avoiding doing bad. See, religious people believe intimacy or closeness is cultivated and secured through good moral behavior. Some of you are like, I can't track with that. That's not my thing. Others of us, usually more non-religious people, didn't grow up going to church, fear that there's distance with God too, though. But instead of chasing through pride, we chase through shame. See, the way we close the gap is by admitting how bad we are as frequently as we possibly can. We lament and condescend ourselves to get closer to God. We see this in the words and heart, actually, of the younger brother. In Jesus' story of the lost son, on his way back home from sinning wildly in the far-off country, if you remember this, if you ever had wild nights as a child or even as a 20 or 30-year-old, you know that if you need to explain yourself to someone, you get a speech ready. You begin to rehearse it in your head and you get ready to explain yourself to whoever is in charge of you or whoever will be disappointed with you. The son does the same thing. He's planning to tell his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven And before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as your hired servant. Did you hear it, church? The younger brother believes that he is going to close the gap that now he fears between his father and himself by admitting how unworthy he is. He's trying to beat his father to the punch. I know what you're going to say. I'm going to say it first. You're going to tell me I'm bad. I'm going to be like, yes, I'm so bad. I'm going to eight mile this thing and take all of your material. Remember eight mile? Eminem at the end of that movie takes all of the bad things that 
B-Rabbit's going to say about it. Do you remember this? You guys need to catch up. He takes all of this bad things that anybody could say about it. He says it about himself. He's going to take all of the energy out of the room. He's going to say all of these things about himself that he fears his dad is going to say about how awful he is. He thinks by doing this, then his dad will accept him. The intimacy will be reinstated, in other words, through self-effacement and humiliation. If my father sees how bad I know I am, he'll welcome me back. What's happening here? Well, the first response is driven by pride. I'll get up to Christ. I'll get up to him. I'll go find him in heaven and bring him down. And the second response is driven by shame. I'll go down to Christ and bring him up. Are you tracking with me, church? But the problem is distance isn't the problem. Distance isn't the problem. Remember, we chase after what we already have. In fact, the story is actually not about the sons in Luke 15. Who's it about? The father. We get so distracted because we identify with one of these folks, but really the main point Jesus is communicating to the Pharisees and the sinners and the tax collectors who are listening to him in Luke 15 is about the father. Do you know what the father says to the older son? That older son who said, I've I've closed the gap through pride. What does he say? You are always with me. What's he saying? There's no distance. You were always with me. Why are you acting like you've closed the gap? There was never a gap. What's he say to the older son? Or the younger one, rather, who's come and ready to shame himself. He's saying, this is my son. He cuts him off when he's about to say, just make me a hired servant. In other words, this is as close as I can get. We're so far apart. I know I can't be your son anymore. Take me back as a hired servant. He's like, this is my son. Intimacy was never lost. Distance is not the problem. So what is? Fear that intimacy and distance, or rather that intimacy has been lost and that distance has happened. The problem is fear. And neither shame nor pride drives out fear. See, Paul is telling us in Romans chapter 10 that Jesus Christ is close He came down from the Father. He came up from the dead in order to draw close to you that we might have access to him simply by speaking and trusting. Distance is not the problem. So what is? Fear. Fear that that's not true. Fear that our sin creates a fresh separation that undoes the incarnation, that undoes the resurrection. Fear that circumstances have exposed God's lack of power. Fear that my situation proves that faith is foolish. My sister, my brother, what about you? What about me? Which tendency do you identify with? Do you respond to fear, the fear that God is far off by saying, I'm going to do better this week. I'm going to do better tomorrow. I'm going to do good and close the gap. Or do you respond to the fear of distance by disparaging yourself, by shaming yourself, by God saying, Telling God, like, I know I'm awful. I know I'm terrible. But would you please welcome me back just as a hired servant? Is it pride? Or is it shame? If you're more pride or prone, rather, to drive out fear of distance through pride, then you know that feeling that I'm so familiar with that you can never do enough. No collection of good deeds is ever good enough to silence that inner critic. That smug voice that asks, where's your God? You can do more. That wasn't good enough. 
people are still not going to like you. You've got to do more. And if you're more prone to drive out the fear of distance through shame, then you know that the voice of unworthiness is never silenced simply by admitting that it's present. It just makes you feel more unworthy. See, pride does not drive out fear. Shame does not drive out fear. What the Bible teaches us is the only thing that drives out fear is what? Love. Perfect love. The Apostle John told his readers, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. God is not close, sister, because in your pride you keep doing good. God is not close, brother, because in your shame you keep agreeing how messed up and bankrupt and terrible you are. God is close because he loves you. Because he loves you. He loves you so much that he already came down. He loves you so much that he already came up. He loves you so much that he is closer, the scriptures say, than a brother. He's right there. All you need to do is speak. All you need to do is trust. God is close because Christ came down and Christ came up. Church, he is so close, you just need to whisper his name. See, in speaking and trusting, we stop chasing after something that we already possess. In speaking and trusting, we cultivate and even enjoy the intimacy of Christ. It settles our souls. So what do we say? And what do we trust? From this transitional word, Paul, that word because, Paul speaks about the harmony of our words and belief. Look at it again with me. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Paul is talking about not only salvation, but also maturation of sanctification, of growing up. How do we know? Salvation may seem really clear, and he says you will be saved, but where do we get this idea of maturity? Well, notice that Paul says, because we confess and believe we are saved, we're justified. And as one of my old seminary professors used to say, how you are justified is how you are sanctified. In other words, whatever gets you close to Christ, hear this, keeps you close to Christ. Whatever gets you close to Christ keeps you close to Christ. Becoming and being a Christian comes from the same power, from the same place. And remember, it's all about closeness to Christ. So if good works keep you close to Jesus, if got you close to Jesus, rather, what's going to keep you close? What are we going to tell ourselves? I got to keep doing good. And as soon as I do bad, there's distance. And if shame tells you only by admitting bad are you close to Christ, then we've got to keep talking about how awful we are to God to keep us close. But if God's love got you close, what keeps you close is love. And what Paul is saying here then is that we can rest in and cultivate intimacy with the Lord through our confession and our belief. The way we were saved is the way that we are kept, the way that we are sanctified. So what do we say? Look again, verse 9 says, if we confess with our mouth the what? Jesus is Lord. Let's get real practical. Paul is really clear here. Simply put, we say Jesus is Lord. Lord, not as like a magical incantation, but rather we ex access the closeness with Christ Jesus by saying, speaking, articulating, acknowledging, confessing who he is. 
by remembering that. Do you know how often through the Old Testament God tells his people to remember the most obvious things? The things you would think they could not possibly forget. We never forget like these obscure details. We always forget the most fundamental and substantive ideas of our faith, that Jesus is Lord. What exactly does that mean? Well, Jesus is Lord is an announcement. And in the ancient world, the good news was that Caesar is Lord. It was a common mantra of the day that centered the people of the Greco-Roman world on the power, sufficiency, authority, and supposed divinity of Caesar. In other words, saying that Caesar is Lord was shorthand for communicating your political affiliation and your social allegiance. Christians come along, in particular the Apostle Paul, intentionally coins a phrase which is in direct opposition to the good news of the day. Jesus is Lord. It's impossible, I think, for us to have a full understanding of the size and scope and weightiness of this statement. To say that Jesus is Lord, then, is to unhitch your earthly affiliations and affections as your primary source of identity. To say that Jesus is Lord is to decouple yourself from worldly allegiances as your primary source of safety. To say that Jesus is Lord was to say that Caesar is not. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say a thousand things at the same time. That's why there's so much power in these words. I also think that's why it's so hard to say them. It's because in confessing that Jesus is Lord, we're saying a thousand other powers are not. See, in the Christian imagination, to utter that Jesus is Lord is to convey his power, his sufficiency, his authority, his divinity, and no one else. That's what we're announcing, and we're saved by it. We're saved by this announcement that Jesus is Lord, because in doing so, we are saying we are no longer alleged to sin. We are no longer aligned with shame. We are no longer in league with Satan's sin and death. Paul says to confess this is to find salvation. However, confessing Jesus is Lord is not just how we become Christians, but how we be Christians. You see, even as Christians, we are drawn to earthly powers, aren't we? Enticed by the lordship of money and power and sex. How often do we face a problem and believe that more money will be the solution? I do that all the time. If I just had more money, we could fix this, that, or the other thing. How often do we look to those in positions of power and think I could do that better? Or that I understand it better? How often do we face loneliness and pride and look to sexual gratification as the pleasure that will make us whole? You see, even as Christians... Even as Christians, we need to regularly confess that Caesar is not Lord, that Jesus is. Why? Why do we do this? Because we think that God is distant. We think that God is close. At least I can enjoy the good life while God feels far away. Instead of closing the gap with God, perhaps we just decide to close the gap with our desires. But God, nor the good life, was brought close by giving in to earthly power. See, in the face of these temptations and longings, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves, as Jerry Bridges puts it. And we need to say it to each other, that Jesus is Lord. When that friend and brother sister calls you and is frustrated, do you say Jesus is Lord? You might go, ah, that sounds a little bit tacky. Let me tell you what's tacky, is trying to take earthly wisdom and throw it at a Christian and hope it works. Right? That's tacky. 
That's participating in some earthly realm that you and I know we've been liberated from, so let's act like we have been. I need to tell you, and you need to tell me, Jesus is Lord, and I don't know if you're remembering that right now. Out of love, out of care, to myself, to each other, Jesus is Lord. See, in a manner of speaking, when we say Jesus is Lord, we are rejecting intimacy with the powers of this world, and we are accessing power of the intimacy of the presence of God in our lives, not only individually, but even as a community. See, wouldn't it be beautiful if you know who to call? Who's going to say Jesus is Lord in the middle of your depression, pain, problems, and aggravating situation with a boss or a colleague or a child or a spouse? You know they're going to speak truth to you. I want sisters and brothers like that who say Jesus is Lord. Notice, everyone is going to do this eventually. Philippians chapter 2 tells us, the scriptures tell us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? Jesus Christ is Lord. The invitation is to make that announcement now, to make it regularly. You and I are going to say it. But Paul is saying in Romans 10, say it now and enjoy the power and intimacy and joy now. See, the title of Jesus is all about a form of worship. See, Jesus as Lord is an announcement, but it's also his title. Titles get thrown around a lot in our culture, in our communities, right, as reasons why we should trust and believe. But there is only one title that all of creation and all of eternity will be echoing and speaking and saying and acknowledging and confessing and believing. And the invitation for followers of Jesus is to begin to do that now. Because when we do, we begin this sort of form of worship, if you will, that I think many of us desire, but it can be often elusive. See, when we say that Jesus is Lord, it's a form of worship. We are saying that we are building our lives on a reality. It's counterintuitive because in times of sorrow and moments of weakness, when God feels distant, the last thing I want to do is take that step of faith because I don't see him. I don't know if he's trustworthy. I don't know if it's going to work out. He feels far away. In those moments when we face our fear, when it doesn't feel like Jesus is Lord, those are precisely the moments we need to say it, hear it, and trust it, and surrender to it the most. This is why we need each other. This is why church isn't about showing up at the same longitude and latitude every Sunday at 10, right? This is why we're to become a people. We're supposed to remind each other, hey, Christ is actually really close. When your group is just going nuts and like everybody is just wiling out, the best thing to do is that Jesus is really close and I think we're acting like he's far. Best thing to do in our families and our marriages When we're making bad decisions, not showing love to each other, what do we need to remember? Christ is really close and we can access him in his presence simply by speaking and trusting him. Are we doing that right now? Most of our sinful tendencies are animated by the lie that God is far away. And what Paul is reminding us today is that Christ is close. The nature of intimacy is the reality that Jesus has come down from the Father and come up from the dead. The opposition to intimacy is our own pride and shame which chase after things that we already have in Christ. The cultivation of intimacy is about saying and believing that Jesus is Lord, making that announcement and building our lives on that title of his power, even and especially in the face of fear. Church, sin separates, to be sure, but Christ has brought us close. So may we stop running and start resting 
in the intimate love that God has for us. Heavenly Father, we desire for this to be true. Not just because it makes us feel good or it corrects everything around us right away, but because this is true. This is reality. This is good. This is good news for our soul that Jesus is Lord. So may we not just leave that announcement, not just leave that proclamation and confession at the bedside of conversion, but may it animate our daily lives as followers of Jesus. When we are prone to chase you after pride, may we remember that Jesus is Lord, not me, not us. When we are prone to put on a cloak of shame, may we remember that Jesus is Lord and he has washed us clean of a guilty conscience. May we know the intimate fellowship of your Holy Spirit, not because we do good or we admit bad, but because we are deeply, deeply loved. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.